So how many of you were in town for the whole deal? How many were part of it? On the mall, whatever, let's just, just get a sense. Oh my. Everybody else watched on TV or something? Yeah. <laughs> so I've, I have so many different conversations with people just kind of remarking on what is this? Um, the general sense of that kind of in the culture psyche, it's probably one of the most um, exciting, happy-making, the biochemistry is pretty up, you know, in terms of whatever chemicals, whether it's dopamine or oxytocin or whatever, it's like revved, you know. And um, there's a lot of hope. And last week I spoke about the evolution of consciousness in a general way as being a shift from a kind of self-centeredness where we move through the world and everything is filtered of, you know, how is this going to hurt me or help me, to a sense of identification with wider and wider circles of being so that our heart and our behavior and our words comes from a sense of belonging to the whole and serving the whole. And last week I spoke a bit about the particular quality of humility how when we wake up out of a kind of um, self-centeredness, we're waking up out of an arrogance, a kind of self-importance, which is really a burden. And the inquiry of, well, what does it really mean to be humble of heart? So that was kind of the inquiry last week. And because humility is one of the expressions of that evolution of consciousness, that the more we wake up out of this selfing, um, there's a natural humility. So I'd like to explore um, another quality of, of this waking up out of the separate self tonight. And, um, but first I'd like to, to begin with a, a story. You know, as, as many of you know, I, people send me stuff. <laughs> and um, this one is called Story of Transcendent Love. So many of you might have remembered, so I've spoken of this before, that in Tennessee there's a sanctuary for retired elephants. You remember that? And so they get brought from these zoos. It's very, it's very enlightened. So what they found over the years is that these elephants seem to pair up. They find a best friend. And then the two of them just kind of hang out all the time. And it's, it's kind of fun to watch. So this odd couple formed last year, and it, was a, it wasn't two elephants, it was an older white dog named Bella and an elephant named Tara. Hence, somebody sent it to me. <laughs> I once had a dog named Bella. I'm pretty sure her name was Bella. It was Bella, right? Yeah, okay. Okay, so there's Bella and Tara, and they're, um, you know, kind of spending a lot of time together. So people are going, hey, what's up? You know, <laughs> it's an odd couple. So then... Um, Bella had a spinal cord injury and they had to keep her inside for about three weeks and Tara was devastated. She just went to a kind of a corner of the compound and she just held vigil. She wouldn't go anywhere, wouldn't do anything. And gradually they let the two start having visits and um, you know they'd hang out for an hour and then take them apart again. So finally after uh, Bella healed they were able to reunite. And then they're not only inseparable, you know, they, they slept together, they ate together. There's pictures of this. It was done on CBS News of, of Tara having her big foot hoof on, on Bella's on her back and Tara's rubbing her belly with her elephant foot, you know, and then cleaning her and, you know, grooming her with her trunk and um, real love. So 
So this was a really lovely story, and I watched it and kind of got a little teary, and other people mentioned when we sent it around to each other. And I was kind of wondering, so what is it that's so touching about this kind of thing? A few years ago, it was the hippo and the tortoise. Some of you might remember that from the tsunami. But, um, and what really came through is that um, when we witness this kind of a, an affection or love between species, it even deepens that sense of this mystery of love that just that for, life forms, different consciousnesses express it differently, but life forms have this, you know, moving through them, this sense of together, loving togetherness, loving love. And there's something about when we sense this universal quality, we feel more belonging to the web. It's like we, can, we want to trust love. Each of us deeply wants to trust that love is universal, it's essence, it's what we are, that we can surrender into it, that it can hold our lives. And yet, because of our conditioning, there's a lot of defense and fear and so on. And, and trusting love doesn't mean that bad things don't happen. It just means that love is, and there is a refuge there. And there's something about seeing that goodness as it pours through different creatures and between creatures that are unlikely that deepens our trust in that kind of essence quality. So my sense is that at this time with this inauguration there's a similar kind of deepening of trust in the goodness that's possible. That we're, we watch the different faces on TV or at the inauguration or feel our own, that there's some wanting for goodness and wanting to have people love each other and wanting that togetherness to be real and there's a sense of the goodness that's possible. It's interesting to me that the word goodness or good derives from the same Indo-European root as the words for gather together, the sense of being joined or united, fitting into a larger whole. So there's some relationship between, not when we're acting good or being good, but that goodness itself has to do with realizing our belonging. And when we're realizing that, there's a natural expression of that goodness, because we're at home. It gets blocked, this goodness, this sense of belonging. It gets blocked when we go into a trance of selfing, of separation. The more we are obsessing on what's going to go wrong, what's wrong with me, what's wrong with you, in that what I call that spacesuit that's kind of trying to manipulate and control the world to navigate for the self, the less intuitive sense there is of this belonging to the whole, the less peace and the less happiness. We don't have that sense of ease. So I speak a lot of the um, trance or the spacesuit self because the Buddha described our biggest suffering as forgetting that belonging, forgetting our innate wholeness and getting caught in some smaller sense of a limited, deficient, afraid self. And when we are in that, we forget who others are. We don't see that, that goodness that's shining through the elephant body or the dog body or the other eyes that are glowing at the inauguration. We can't so much see that because we're caught. We project. 
this little poem from Pablo Neruda, A Certain Weariness. I'm tired of the harsh sea and of the mysterious earth. I'm tired of chickens. We never know what they think. And they look at us with dry eyes as though we're unimportant. (laughs) That's the whole poem. (laughs) I think it's a great poem, you know. You know, it's like the world becomes objects. You know, it's, it's not something we belong to, it's objects out there. So the Buddha described our suffering as when we get caught in this trance, and we all know it when we're honest with ourselves, that every day we, at least for good chunks of the day, are caught in this kind of sense of very preoccupied with um, what I need, what's going to make me more comfortable, what I can get done so I'll feel better, what's going to go wrong. And under that is just this restless discontent. When we're selfing, there's restlessness and discontent. It has to be that way. We're identified as a self that's incomplete, that's threatened by other selves. We don't feel that at-homeness, that goodness of belonging. So there's restless and discontent. And then our activities all get organized around, you know, something's wrong, I'm deficient, we have to prove we're okay. We have to, in some way, defend against outer threats. So the Buddha described this, and he described that we have a capacity called awareness to recognize this trance, and in the recognizing, come back home to that innate sense of belonging. That we have this capacity of awareness. And tonight what I want to emphasize is the quality of courage that goes hand in hand with waking up that awareness. That it's much easier in a way to be in a trance and to say, I'm here, you're there, and to hold our grudges and kind of rev up our our sense of selfness sometimes than pausing and being willing to be aware and get more honest. It takes us home, but on the way it's not comfortable. So there's a quality of courage. And if we look at... um, heroes and spiritual heroes, we see that quality of courage. Now, let me, let's sense, well, what do we mean by courage? And when I, I speak of it, it's really the heart's commitment to truth, that we're more committed to truth than we are to staying comfortable, to proving something, to hiding. So there's, there's this really commit, there's this commitment to what's real, there's a commitment to what we care about. And again, that's what we see in heroism and in, 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 in the spiritual leaders that inspire us is that there's some dedication, that they're so in touch with what matters that, and the courage is that of course there's fear. I mean, courage doesn't mean a lack of fear. Courage means the willingness to be with fear even though, because something matters. And for any of us in our lives, the times that we've woken up are because in some way, more than hiding or resisting or blaming or numbing, there was some courage to stay present so that we could discover something bigger. Sometimes we got backed up against the wall, you know, and nothing else worked. All our normal escape strategies didn't work. That happens. But in the final analysis there was some courage there, some commitment to presence. 
loving takes courage. There's no way we can love in the moment in an awake way because what happens is that in the process of loving we have to face all our vulnerability, all our fears of rejection, all our fears that something's wrong with us and that we, that we won't be able to really be received. There's a fear that if I'm generous or if I'm vulnerable I'll be taken advantage of, that if I show who I am I'll be rejected. So in the process of awakening our heart it takes courage, we have to take risks. So a story for you that, that is recent about courage. This is a, a friend of mine I got together with just maybe a month ago and um, he's the head of a not-for-profit. And in this economy, as you know, many nonprofits are really shaky and um, there's lots of insecurity inside his organization and a lot of uh, finger-pointing in terms of whose fault and because he's a leader He's the target of a number of people and in return he's made them the bad guys, like they're undermining them. So that's the setup. And so in our conversation, because uh, he's, he's in this for growth, he wants to wake up, but, but it's, it's very hard when you know what it's like. Any one of us here knows when we're being attacked that the first line of defense is to blame the other person for being bad in some way. It's very hard not to do that. It's very biological. And there's an intelligence. We need to find out how we can take care of ourselves. But if we lock in, it stops being intelligent. It stops being evolutionarily useful. We're just dug in and small. So for him, we started exploring and and I asked him the question I often ask, and you can ask yourself this wherever you're caught in blaming that somebody else is wrong in some way. Which is, if you had to put aside the story of that person being wrong, what would you have to feel? What's difficult to feel that you'd have to feel? It's an important inquiry. Because we'll hang on like crazy to rights and wrongs because there's something we don't want to feel. And for him it was clear that it was something he'd been running from all his life, which is feeling not competent. And it was unra- and his sense of competency was unraveling, given what's happening in the economy. So, and then he started reflecting, and, and he realized that he could do his very best right now. In other words, he said, "I could be the most brilliant, emotionally intelligent, strategic person, and still, our organization would crash. It could crash, and you know, it, it's out of my hands." So he really got that. It's out of my hands. And then he realized that everything he had fears about, whether it was his health or the people he loved, it's really out of his hands. So that was really important, that he was locking into blame when underneath there was a basic sense of the fragility of life, that it was out of his hands, there was nothing he could really control. Okay, brief story. One day when the sultan was in his palace at Damascus, a beautiful youth who was his favorite rushed into his presence, crying out in great agitation that he must fly at once to Baghdad and imploring leave to borrow his majesty's swiftest horse. The sultan asked why he was in such a haste to go to Baghdad. Because, the youth answered, as I passed through the gardens of the palace just now, death was standing there, and when he saw me, he stretched out his arms as if to threaten me, and I must lose no time in escaping from him. The young man was given leave to take the sultan's horse and fly, and when he was gone the sultan went down indignantly to the garden and found death still there. How dare you make threatening gestures at my favorite, he cried. But death, astonished, answered, 
I assure your majesty, I did not threaten him. I only threw up my arms in surprise at seeing him here because I have a tryst with him tonight in Baghdad. Okay, so where are we? That in the story of my friend, um, he'd locked into blame because he just didn't want to face that basic deep thing we all have, which is it's scary to be alive because we don't know what's going to happen around the corner and we really can't control it. So we'd rather lock into our strategies of blaming and trying to control than just pause and connect with that fundamental sense of fear. So what does it mean if everything really, all the big things, the economy, health, our bodies, relationships, what other people do are out of our hands. You know, what does it really mean? Does it mean that we're not responsible, that there's no action at all, that we raise our fists to the heavens? You know, Oscar Wilde on his deathbed was drifting in and out of consciousness and once he opened his eyes and he was heard to murmur, this wallpaper is killing me. One of us has to go. (laughs) I like that. But anyway, so for most of us, when things feel out of control, we try harder to control. Now, what we're getting around to is what does it mean to have a courageous presence so that our life comes from something deeper than that controlling. But for most of us, when things are stressful, our backup strategies are even more controlling, speeding up, blaming, turning on ourselves. There's a sense that we have to do something. It's very hard to not do at those moments. You know, there's a a story of some New Jersey hunters around in the woods and one of them falls to the ground. He doesn't seem to be breathing, his eyes are rolled back in his head. The other guy whips out his cell phone and calls the emergency services. He gasps to the operator, my friend is dead, what can I do? The operator, in a calm, soothing voice, says, just take it easy, I can help. First, let's make sure he's dead. There's silence and then a shot is heard. (laughs) The guy's voice comes back online. He says, okay, now what? <laughs> <You know? laughs> so that's a very bad joke, I know. But, but I thought it was a great illustration of the fact that we'll do anything versus nothing, right? And you know what that's like when you're agitated, you know? I know that was really bad. <laughs> Sorry. So the question is, when we're really stressed and all our reflexes are to try to control, what's our options? And the Buddha talks about a deeper level of responsibility, of being able to respond. And that is that we can respond from awareness, that there's there's no controlling to be done. If there's any self that's trying to manipulate, again, judge, blame, numb, whatever, that won't work. But in those moments, what's courageous and what allows us to respond is coming into awareness. So it's challenging because we are very, very familiar with our old strategies. So the question is, how do we cultivate this capacity to notice and to stop for a moment and really have the courage to be with what we really don't want to feel? that's really what it's about. So with uh, this, this man that I was describing, um, that became his inquiry. 
like how could he when because this is an ongoing thing I mean he's in a work setting, setting where and some of you know what it's like in a work setting you just get re-triggered and re-triggered and re-triggered or maybe it's in your family but it's not like it's a one sh- once and for all thing okay I work that one so he kept getting triggered and each time he'd enter the story of you know these guys are bad guys they're undermining they're coming from a, you know it's, it's not fair and so on his practice was to pause when he could. He sometimes had to take time out, but pause and really contact and face the place in him that was um, really afraid of failing, that he was going to lose people's respect. And he had this image when he, at one, one point, one night he went home and he really let himself feel it. He had this image that if he really leaned into that fear and let it be full that it was like his very lifeline to the mothership would be cut it was like he would fail and he would be absolutely annihilated just drift off into space and die so we're talking about the opposite of belonging the opposite of this embeddedness and wholeness this is the spacesuit self that's in this trance of I'm going to fail and feels like they're going to be cut off totally and that was when he, he just kept staying and he kept feeling, okay, cut off, floating in space, annihilated and the more he let himself open to it and again, this is the process we practice here this is really drawing on the basic elements of meditation just letting it happen, saying yes even leaning into fear now by the way, this isn't when for everybody and in the middle of trauma it's not recommended but if we're not traumatized and we can practice this way, it's freeing. Leaning into fear, saying yes, feeling absolutely hurtling through space, completely losing everything. And he said yes at such a deep level that all of a sudden he felt that the very vastness of space itself was his refuge. He didn't need a small mothership, that he was really, he could feel this movement of fear and planets and oceans, and it was all all that he was was being held in the wholeness of space and he kept saying it's out of my ego's hands I can't control anything and the more he let go the more he felt himself just that that he was that spaciousness and there's a tremendous compassion in it and a clarity in it so there's a movement here, a shift that I just want to name that comes from courageous presence from being this kind of in a trance the spacesuit self-controlling to pausing, to opening to the fear and discovering a vastness of who we are that we could not contact at all when we were trying to control things. And for this man, and as he described it, because we've been talking through these weeks, the more he just said, okay, let go of control, let just be that vastness, the more he found himself spontaneous, he found creativity coming through, he found an intelligence, it's kind of like the universe's intelligence could move through him because he wasn't so small and tied up in trying to control things. Now if he said to himself, wow, look how great I'm handling this, the universe's wisdom's coming through me, and of course everything contracted and vanished. <laughs> That's the problem, you can't own it. You just have to keep letting go. But for him this gave rise to a really deep longing which, as he put it, was not to have his life so wrapped around proving a personal self. He just kept finding that it was exhausting, it was endless. 
He could never be enough according to that self. And so that this has become more and more of his intention is this kind of courage to just be with the fear and stop thinking a small self can control things. So I share this story because to me it's a description of the evolution of consciousness, of moving from a self that's doing things to sensing a larger belonging. And the challenge, as I mentioned, is that um, we're hooked on our familiar strategies and it feels very scary to pause and just feel the fear. So that's the training. And I'd like just to do a brief reflection because this is really about where each of us in our lives could, could awaken more of a courageous presence. So we'll do a brief reflection and then continue. just to begin any reflection by inviting yourself into presence, sensing this moment, what it means to come home, maybe to feel your breath and to relax a bit. And you might ask yourself where in your life there's a kind of a stuck in that trance place, that reactivity, that might really be a place of freedom if there was more of a kind of courageous presence. It might be a dance, you get locked in with another person It might be an addictive pattern. It might be a way that things are unfolding at work. just to identify that because we're going to be um, practicing as we do after a bit more in the talk of what that would mean for you. But for now, just to sense if you were bringing more presence, if you were to slow down, if you were to um, take a time out in the midst of a kind of reactive situation, what would it be inside you? What would be the vulnerability that would need attention, would want attention? And the beginning of courage is just to acknowledge that to yourself. Okay, so there's fear here or hurt here. A path of courage is, in the face of these stressors, the willingness 
to be truthful, to be present with what's really here so you can find out what matters to you. And then it's a willingness to act from that presence. This is the first step, just to acknowledge the human vulnerability that is really asking for a courageous presence. It's not so easy to sit with that, as we know. Okay, so you can open your eyes. We'll come back to this, but just it's 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 really alive in a process to be able to just name for yourself, well, where could I be more courageous, you know, in my presence? Now, I mentioned the first step is to recognize, just the way this, my friend recognized with me, okay, he was acknowledging, okay, I'm just afraid of failure, of my own, of feeling incompetent, that there's a way in which when we can name it to ourselves and be aware when we're naming it. Or, and if we can begin to name it with trusted others, and this is the power of satsang, of being in sangha or community with friends, that it becomes less personal. We, we start saying, yeah, human imperfection, it's okay. So there's a real power to begin to name things. Some of you might remember the church sign that, you, that they had out in front of one, one church. It said, sermon this morning, Jesus walks on water. Sermon this evening searching for Jesus. So it's like getting, it's not about like that we have to do it right, it's like really can we have the courage to just to recognize what's what. And we have a deep fear usually in naming it to others that the way we try to control other people is to withhold information about ourselves. And we all do it to some degree unless we're really feeling free. So the process of naming to others our vulnerability actually undoes a lot of that controlling self. A friend of mine uh, was leading a teen retreat recently and one of the inquiries that they had there was a kind of a fill in the sentence and it went, if you really knew me, you'd know. And she said that it was an incredible thing that happened because it takes a lot of courage to name something that might be not appealing to others. So they'd name different things. One would be, one person would say, I lost my mom last year and I write her letters every day in my journal. And another would say, I'm petrified of being in groups. Another would say, I can't go to a party without drinking three beers first. Or, um, one girl said, you know, I a few times a week I eat almost a quart of ice cream before I go to bed, you know. Somebody else said, I want to run for political office. You know, things that were... And then, and some, and then it would get deeper, and the more one person would take a chance, the more another would, and they'd be tender. Like one, one said, I, I cried when we moved, and then I went back to the property and found my favorite old oak was cut, and I've been grieving that oak, you know, things like that. So it starts with just saying what's true. And then it continues when we begin to recognize what matters to us. And I felt like one of the, um, the power of that inaugural talk was that, because to me Barack Obama really models a lot of this evolution of consciousness, of um, really bringing a lot of presence and really calling on 
on the whole, all of us to be responsible, but from a place of really serving the whole. There really is a sense of this vision and possibility of belonging to something larger and the goodness of that. And yet, if, you know, it's very hard to make the sacrifices to give up. We get very caught in our, our self-centeredness. So the challenge is, can we live from what matters? In other words, can we align the compass of our hearts and really live from that? And it's and be okay if we don't do it so perfectly. There was this this dialogue. This reporter was asked a bank president known in the business world, "Sir, what is the secret of your success?" Two words. Okay, what are they? Right decisions. And how do you make the right decisions? One word. And sir, what is it? Experience. And how do you get experience? Two words. And sir, what are they? wrong decisions. So, it's, so this is the second part of courage, is the willingness to sense what matters and live from it. And um, I found something recently written by Madeline Lengel. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing her name, but she wrote A Wrinkle in Time. And first, how many of you have read A Wrinkle in Time? Okay. That was my favorite book for a very long time. So I loved reading this by her. She says that she sent out her first book that she had written and she was really excited about it, but she found out it was rejected. And um, at the time, the way it was rejected, it seemed clear that she was being told she'd have to give up on writing and bake cookies and concentrate on raising her children. So she covered up her typewriter and cried. But that night she conceived the idea for a novel about failure. She wrote in her journal, I'm a writer, that's who I am, even if I'm never published again. Well, she never sold the book on failure, but she worked on another book, A Wrinkle in Time, which received nearly 30 rejections before it was sold. Can you believe that? (laughs) Anyway. So it was published, and she sold the book nearly every year for the next 20 years or so. In the meantime, she raised her three children. She wrote this. Over the years, I've worked out a philosophy of failure, which I find extraordinarily liberating, she said. If I'm not free to fail, I'm not free to take risks, and everything in life that's worth doing involves a willingness to risk failure. The same thing is true in all human relationships. Unless I'm willing to open myself up to risks and to being hurt, then I'm closing myself off to the love and the friendship. So a path of courageous presence when we live it in our relationships is a willingness to expose and to reveal and to be fully who we are with others. And it's that way with ourselves too. It's the courage to relate to ourselves with a quality of kindness, get out of the box of our own shoulds. Just the way she did. She, she had this, I should be doing it this way. But she said, no, I really, really want to be true to this creativity. Another friend of mine who turned 60 this year is um, the happiest she's ever been. She's the happiest she's been for years. And she was describing what was different. And what she told me was that for most of her life she lived inside this idea of a schedule and what she was supposed to do when. And her happiness quotient, or basically being at peace, had to do with doing the things she was supposed to do and how well she was doing it. And that was it. And so she feels like she's the happiness that's coming through now, this very deep happiness, is because she feels like she's had the courage to step out of the box of the shoulds 
And her practice is every time she hears a should, like I should be doing this or I should do more of that, she pauses. Just like this man paused when he felt blame. She pauses with the shoulds. And she gets in touch. She says she, she contacts herself and senses, okay, what really matters right now? And then she might do it, but she's doing it from a deeper place. But for her, again, she has picked up writing, she's picked up dancing, and she's more alive. John O'Donohue, when he describes um, really this kind of freedom, calls this opening to our inner wildness. He says, remember the native wildness within us and then ask, what have we done with that wildness? The reason people find so little sense of the divine is because they're so controlled and defended. They've lost their sense of their own wildness. Mystics are people who hold the wildness of the divine alive for us. So when we're living in the spacesuit and following the shoulds and doing our strategies of blaming others or blaming ourselves, we disconnect from the wildness and we disconnect from the larger belonging. And this process of courageous presence reconnects us. It reconnects us with a spontaneity and a love and a vast kind of mystery that's within us. There's um, a courage, really, that comes down to being fully what we are. We are so habituated to being who we think we should be. And I think that's one of the deepest kind of expressions of that courage. It's to really sense what we love, who we are, and live from that. Let me see if I have time for one. Yeah, I'll just share this story that I I loved. This is uh, Pema Chodin's writing about a 15-year-old Hispanic guy from Los Angeles. This is her language. He grew up in a violent neighborhood and was in gangs from the age of 13. He was really smart and he came on really mean. He was tough and he snarled and he walked around with a big chip on his shoulder. He had the feeling that that was all he had going for him. His world was so rough that acting like the baddest and the meanest was the only way he saw to survive it. He's one of those people who definitely would drive, would blame others. He was sent to Boulder, Colorado by some friends of his family for the summer to give him a break, to give him a summer in the mountains. His mother and others were trying to help him get an education and step out of this kind of nightmare gang world. The people he was staying with were loosely affiliated with the Buddhist community. One day he came to an event where Trungpa Rinpoche was, and at the end of the event, Trungpa Rinpoche sang the Shambhala anthem. Now this was an awful experience for the rest of us, because for some reason he loved to sing the Shambhala anthem in a high-pitched, squeaky, and cracked voice. This particular event was outside. As Rinpoche sang into the microphone and the sound traveled for miles across the plains, Juan, this young man, broke down and started to cry. He cried and he cried. Everyone else was feeling awkward or embarrassed, but he just cried. Later, he said that he was crying because he had never seen anyone that brave. He said, that guy, he's not afraid to be a fool. That turned out to be a major turning point in his life because he realized he didn't have to be afraid of being a fool either. All that persona and chip on the shoulder were guarding his soft spot and he could let them go. And because he was so sharp and bright, he got the message. His life turned around and now he's got his education. He's back in L.A. helping kids. If we 
spend our lives protecting the soft spot where we're afraid to fail, where we feel like we're incompetent, where we're afraid of not being loved, if we're protecting it, if we're protecting the soft spot, then we never get to contact that wildness and the love and the freedom that's possible. And we don't get to live in it in a way that can serve our earth. We're just all wound up in that spacesuit self-protecting itself. So courage is all about the willingness to stop putting our energy so much into protecting and bring ourselves back to that presence, that wholeness that's right here. I said earlier that one of the biggest areas is this courage to love. And often our loving is mixed with controlling another person or trying to save another person. One of my friends described one of her great breakthroughs as kind of waking up from the trance, her relationship with her daughter who went through multiple addictions. And each time she'd be hitting bottom and, the, and her mom would save her in some way, let her back in the house, pay for this, do that. She loved her and she was trying to control and make her life come out in a certain way. Totally understandable. And yet, her deepest courageous act was to surrender and say, this is out of my hands. Trying to save my daughter in this way is not really saving her. In other words, the same thing as the man with the economy and his job. It's out of my hands. And when she could really surrender and just open to the sheer fear and hurt and pain, she discovered a, a sense of loving her daughter that was vaster than she had ever discovered. And her way of being with her daughter, something communicated because she was firm. She actually had more boundaries and she had more of a healing uh, kind of field around her. And her daughter had to fall down four or five more times in terrible ways before she found her own way and that was the only way it was going to work. So there's the courage, in a way, to not do our normal ways of trying to save or control or manage others. And then there's the courage to not withhold our expression of affection. Stephen Levine, who's written a lot about death and dying, asks this question. He says, if you had three days to live, who would you call and what would you say? And why aren't you doing that now? What are we waiting for? We have an illusion in the spacesuit self of we're managing things for a better future, we're protecting for another future, and we postpone that courageous presence, we hold back our love, We hold back living from a creative place because we in some way want to make it safer or easier or something. So again, I'd like to invite you to go back to the uh, reflection of where you could be more courageous and we'll just take a, a few more moments with that. And as I mentioned, it might be a kind of courageousness in expressing your love, not holding back love. It might be the courage to set certain boundaries. It might be the courage to give yourself more fully, creatively, or to serve 
in a, in a deeper way. It might be the courage to get more involved with community. It might be the courage to attend a silent meditation retreat or to dance or to write. If you were to bring a courageous presence to the place where you feel stuck in some way or reactive, what's the vulnerability that's there? If you could in a very gentle way, whisper to yourself the vulnerability just to say, okay, fear or hurt. And for some of you, if you like, just to put your hand on your heart as you do and just let yourself be the awareness that is gently holding that vulnerability. So this is the courageous presence. It's just to notice the vulnerability, the soft spot that we protect and just offer a presence to it. It might simply be the word yes. It might be it's like this. But if this evening all that happens is in some way you acknowledge and offer a little presence to the vulnerability that you might have been avoiding, the hurt or the fear, that is opening the door for a courageous life a more courageous life. as you bring presence to whatever's here right now, sense what the longing is. Just as my friend senses longing to not be so caught in trying to prove his competence, to really recognize it was out of his hands, to let this universe live through him. What's your longing? What for you would be an expression of a more courageous life? Taking some moments to just imagine feeling this presence right now that which is present with vulnerability, that which knows and senses the longing, and just to imagine what it would be to live from that courageous presence in a very particular way, in some particular situation or setting. What would it mean to live, live true to your heart?
have your true heart expressed. Sense the natural wisdom and love that can live through you when your life is sourced in presence. The privilege of a lifetime, writes Joseph Campbell, is to be fully who we are, to come back home to this presence and live from it. I'd like to close the evening with a metta or loving-kindness meditation to feel in our own hearts the prayer that we be more and more free to live from this awakeness, from this love, from this wisdom and to sense this particular juncture in time and in history, to sense the hope that's alive in so many, the longing for the goodness to be more manifest, to sense our wish, our prayer, that all beings, beings here in this country, beings everywhere, might more and more have that courage to come home to this presence, to live from this presence, that we might recognize our shared belonging, that we might live to serve the whole, to bring healing and peace to this earth. And may all beings everywhere be filled with loving presence, be held in loving presence. May all beings everywhere touch natural peace. May there be peace on earth, May there be peace everywhere. May all beings awaken and be free. Namaste. The teaching you have received has been freely offered. If you would like to contact the Insight Meditation Community of Washington to make a donation or to learn more about our programs, please visit our website at www.imcw.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.